Father, we thank you for every privilege to be taught by you, to hear your word. Lord, we desire to master life, Lord. We desire to live, to please you. So as we uh, wait upon your spirit to teach us, I pray your blessing upon our senior pastor, Kok Fai, as he speaks your word, Lord. Help us to really receive your truth, Lord. I want to pray that, Lord, you will watch over all of us. As we know, Lord, this is a spiritual warfare. We not only pray for your protection, we pray uh, the victory that Jesus has won on the cross over all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. We enter into our second uh, of five sermons on the bed of Satan. Um, yeah, several weeks ago, actually at the end of August, we had a diaconate retreat and we played this game. What is it called? Snakes and Ladders, uh, but with a twist. So I don't know how it goes, but I think every time you go up a ladder or you come down a snake and you hit uh, a square, and then you have to answer a question. So um, Edwin Chua hit one of these squares, and the question was, uh, you have to answer uh, any question that has been given to you truthfully. And so one wise crack, I won't tell you who, but he's an elder, said, Edwin, how much money do you have? And Edwin had to answer this question. Again, I'm not going to tell you his answer, but you can ask him. Or you can play this game with him. Then I got one. I think I hit a snake and I went down and I was asked the question. The question was, why do you love your church? So I said, I have two. I'm the senior pastor. You know, I like to say that I'm not as stupid as I look. <laughs> and, and I think the answer is not as stupid as it looks or as stupid as it sounds. And it's sort of like the equivalent answer, uh, an equivalent, equivalent answer would be like, do you love the girl you marry or do you marry the girl that you love? It's like, do you love the church you go to or do you go to the church that you love? Something like that. Because we have a relationship and a commitment. Right? I am a part of PPH, so are you. And the PPH is a part of me. And together we are the body of Christ. And I'm not going to, to, to leave PPH without a very good reason and without God's approval and God's blessings. You've heard of Barna Research. Barna Research Group is, is this group in America that does research on, on religious stuff and, and a lot of Christian stuff. And Barna Research tells us that uh, in a year, one out of every seven adults in America changes church or leave the church and go to another one. And that every year, one out of six adults attends a carefully chosen handful of churches on a rotating basis. It's like a buffet spread. So today I'm in PPH, next Sunday I'm somewhere else, and next Sunday I'm somewhere else. Maybe, maybe they choose four or five, and then five weeks later they come back to PPH or when there's a speaker who is not me, then they will come. Something like that. It's, it's a buffet. And, and, and you and I know that this is the phenomenon of church hopping, or, or some call it church shopping. Um, and I've also been told that in America, these statistics don't just refer to, to members. The statistics of every year, one in seven changing church applies also to pastors. Um, and my worst experience in PPH ever was to have someone join us in the pastoral team and who left us after two weeks I got so embarrassed. And I was even more embarrassed when one church member came up to me and said, Pastor, don't you guys pray before bringing this person on board into your pastoral staff? I said, yeah, we do. <laughs> of course we do. Then how come this person leaves after two weeks? Um, and, and the normal procedure that we have always is to ask the person, have you resolved and, and have full closure with all the issues you might have with your previous church, right? It's, it's a standard thing. We pray and have you resolved everything? And I also call up 
a, a pastor or some leader in the other church to find out, you know, is that proper closure? And, and, but even that requires a lot of, of discernment. You really have to discern and sometimes read between the lines. If, for example, I call up this senior pastor and say, hey, one of your ex-staff wants to join my church, and, um, and, and this guy says, oh, you'll be very fortunate if you can get this person to work for you. And there are two meanings, right? So you need discernment. I guess for this particular case where this person joined us for two weeks, the discernment wasn't quite there. But we should be committed to a local body of, of believers uh, to be built up and to build up. Like the Bible says, to be edified and to edify in faith, in hope, in love. And you know that in PPH, we have a, a membership covenant uh, a membership commitment that those who are, are, are baptized here, we use this guide called Discovering Church Ministry. It's like a book. Uh, it's also our baptism class, uh, 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 like textbook. I uh, don't have time to get into all of this, but I want to let you know that we do have a membership covenant, a commitment, and these are all the stuff uh, in there, okay? I'm not going to uh, go through all of them, but to, just to let you know that we make a commitment to, to safeguard the unity of my church. And then by doing this, by doing this, by refusing to gossip, uh, by following the leaders and all that, and everyone is uh, uh, backed up with uh, a biblical principle. And there's a verse there. Then I will share the responsibility of my church by da-da-da-da. I will serve the ministry of my church, PPH, by da-da-da. And I will support the testimony of my church by this and that and that. And everything is so biblical, uh, yeah, it's so logical. But still, we may ask the question, what is church? What is church? Church is simply a body of believers that got put together. Okay, That's how I would define it. A local church, I mean. Of course, we can say that I'm in a, I'm in a universal church, right? I belong to the global church of all the world and all the countries in the world. But for us to interact with one another, to live together as a local body, there needs to be a local church. And, and this is what... Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 from verse 18, and it talks about the church. It says, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And a hand and a head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are presented with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers for it, with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And, and that is the body, the local church. So, verse 18 says, God has arranged all the parts in the body. And not everybody is the head. Not everybody is the nose. And if it is something that he has arranged, and if we now want to rearrange it, what should we do? We should seek approval from the person who arranged it in the first place, right? Isn't that logical and obvious? God arranged it. You want to rearrange it? Seek his approval. But doesn't God know that in a body like this, we will offend someone and someone will offend me. Doesn't God know that there's going to be problems within the church? Doesn't God know that we are all sinners saved by grace? And sometimes the, 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 my finger can poke into your eye and your smelly foot can shove up my nose. Doesn't God know that those kind of things will happen when he arranged these parts of the body? And there is a reason why God has arranged such, and we'll get into that later. 
Now, if you are a, a new believer, or you have moved in from a, a, another country, or if you have moved from Pasiris to Pasipanjang, I think it is very, very uh, uh, proper for you to hop around, or, or call it shop around, prayerfully looking for a body of believers to commit yourself to. Make that decision after hopping around for a while and then make a commitment. But what did I find? I was, as I was preparing this, I found uh, under the Singapore Expats Forum, some kind of a, a forum that expats uh, write, and, and I read to you. I, I think it's from a lady. And she said, we were church hopping over the last eight years, looking for a good church for my kids in Singapore, and then we found a good church, and she mentioned the name of this church. And most of the teachers there seem to be from international schools in Singapore. So, what do you think? <laughs> eight years. I think if a kid was eight years old, <laughs> after eight years, she's no longer a kid, a teenager. And I think you can safely say that this person was a spiritual vagabond for eight long years. What is a vagabond? Okay, uh, Merriam-Webster Online Dictionary free of charge, says, Vagabond is somebody moving from place to place without a fixed home. Or a vagabond uh, has the characteristics of a wanderer. And a negative connotation there is that it leads to an unsettled, irresponsible, or even a disreputable life. A vagabond. The first mention of this word vagabond in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain killed his younger brother, Abel. It was God who created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had the first son, Cain, and then came a younger brother, a second son, Abel. God put Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel in the Adam's family. Adam with one D, okay? Adam with one D. And Cain messed up the Adam's family. He killed his younger brother. And then God said with a broken heart, you will read this later, that you are a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. That's how God described Cain, the murderer of his brother. So that's where the word comes from, vagabond. So why do, why do people leave a church? Why do they hop? Why do they change? I mentioned earlier relocation. I think that's quite legitimate. You're coming from another country, uh, another part of Singapore, and you want to have a church closer to your home. Um, but other reasons could be, and I've heard many of this, oh, I'm not fed in this church. I'm not filled in this church. Um, I don't get a feel. I don't feel God in this church. Um, I don't agree with the way this church is building this massive uh, uh, church new building and raising money. I don't agree with the expensive stuff that they are buying in this church. And I haven't been coming for three weeks and nobody visits me. And the pastors are, don't care about me. Uh, my cell group leader also don't care about me. Or my voice is not heard because the music is too loud. I cannot hear myself sing. Or my voice is not heard because when I made a suggestion to the senior pastor, he doesn't care. He doesn't give me any feedback. Or I'm just upset with someone. I'm, I'm, I'm upset with something. This is a problem church. That's why I'm leaving it. And just last week, uh, I learned from one of our Chinese pastors uh, who said, there is no such thing as a problem child. It's a child with problems. Right? You don't label a problem. And therefore, I think by extension, you cannot say that this is a problem church. It is a church with problems. Some have more, some have less. And we have problems here in PPH too. So maybe in your cell groups this Friday or, or, or whenever you meet, you can, you can talk about what are legitimate, legit reasons for leaving a church and changing a church and non-legitimate uh, reasons. Today, I want to cover one possible reason for people leaving a church, and that is, I left PPH because I was offended by a spiritual leader. Could be the senior pastor, could be a deacon, could be a cell group leader. But I believe the things that we are discussing today will be applicable also to other possible uh, reasons for, for someone leaving a church. And I want to look at a few cases of uh, offense by a leader. We talked about Cain and Abel earlier in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, the older brother, who used to play with his cute, cute little brother Abel, if you had told him then, that, hey, Cain, one day uh, you're going to 
kill your younger brother. He would have killed you for saying something so ridiculous. How would I ever, ever get it into me to kill my younger brother? But that's what he did. What happened? Why was Cain so angry that he killed his younger brother? You know the story, right? right? He, he offered his gifts uh, to, to God and God did not look with favor on his gifts. But his younger brother offered his gift to God and God looked with favor on his gifts. Okay, you, you, people can write a whole book about offering of the fruit of the land versus uh, a, a sacrificial uh, animal. But let's not get into that. In Hebrews chapter 11, the main reason for this was faith. Cain offered his gifts without faith. Maybe he doesn't even believe in, in God. But Abel went to God with faith. And that's, I think, the key reason. But who offended Cain? Who offended Cain? To the extent that he got so angry, he killed his brother. The offender was God. The offender was the ultimate spiritual leader. And if God offends me, I cannot take it out on God. Who do I take it out on? My little brother. And I believe that was what happened. So Cain took matters into his own bloody hands. And he killed his brother. And you note the sorrow in God's words in Genesis chapter 4 from verse 10. Let me read it to you this way. Sometimes people think that God has wow, got angry and you, you killed your younger brother. I'm going to curse you. But let's read Genesis chapter 4 verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth, a vagabond. That comes out of a broken heavenly father's heart, that you will be a vagabond. Ruthless, restless. So, an offense from a spiritual leader, the ultimate spiritual leader. Another example can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 22. This is the account of Saul and Ahimelech, a priest. Now, in those days, priests were spiritual and community leaders. They would be like an RC chairman or a community center chairman. They often had to uh, uh, adjudicate in disputes and lead the people. And Saul was upset that Ahimelech and his priests provided food for David and his men. And Saul was looking and, and, and chasing David, wanting to kill David. And Ahimelech provided food for David and his men, even provided a sword for David, that same sword that David used to chop off the head of uh, Goliath. He gave that sword back to David, and he even prayed for David. The Bible says he inquired of the Lord for David. He was an intercessor to God for David. And Saul came to Ahimelech and said, what have you done? And Ahimelech answered the king Saul this way. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 14. Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David? The king's son-in-law, the captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household. Simple, factual answer. But it offended Saul so much, he probably said, you talk to me like that? Priest or no priest, let me now show you who is the boss. And he killed Ahimelech plus 85 priests. And as if that was not enough, he killed everybody else in that town called Nob, N-O-B. Everybody, including the animals and the woman and the children. And that was that offense that grew out of where? Out of the, the ladies and the children of, of, of the kingdom saying, oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that built up the offense to, to the point where you are able to obliterate a whole town and 85 priests at that. But you know that six chapters earlier, in 1 Samuel 16, God's spirit had already left Saul because of his sin. And Saul was already a spiritual vagabond. Ruthless, restless, 
spiritless. Now we come to David and Saul, the account in these two chapters. After two negative cases, let's now look at two more instructive, positive cases. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul took 3,000 men to hunt down David. And they came to a place called En Gedi, which is uh, by the side of the Dead Sea. If you're, you go to Israel as a tourist, you will go to En Gedi because it's right where the Dead Sea is. You can go there and float in the Dead Sea. And it's mountainous on one side, and there's the Dead Sea on the other side. Plenty of caves for people to hide. And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, in one of those caves. And Saul, as king, was in one of these caves, and he was peeing. Right? The Bible says he was relieving himself. And David crept up to Saul and snipped off a part of Saul. Not a body part, but just a corner of his robe. And let me read to you 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 5. What happened after King David, uh, not, after David, who was not yet king, snipped off a part of the royal robes? Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When, David looked behind him, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Because some, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of rope in my hand. Cut off the corner of your rope, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Quite self-explanatory. This is what happened. David respected Saul's position as a spiritual authority, as a kingly authority, even though Saul was trying to kill him and, and, and falsely accusing him of a rebellion. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel chapter 26, it happened again. You know, you talk about, last week we talked about uh, seven times in a day you forgive or or forgive 70 times 7. Okay, this is twice in two chapters. I don't know what the, the timing is. The second time it happened. And you sort of have to think that, that David and his men were the ultimate ninjas or commandos. Huh? Somehow they can creep right up to the king. And David and Abishai. Abishai was, uh, king, uh, uh, was, was David's uh, nephew from his sister's side. And also... I believe one of three division commanders, okay? I think today he had to be a two-star general, a division commander. And the last time Saul was, uh, was peeing, now he was sleeping. And the two of them, David and Abishai, crept up to him while Saul was sleeping and stole his spear and stole his water jug. And then Abishai says, let's kill him. We have the opportunity. He's sleeping. We can even kill him with his own spear. What did David say? 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, I guess naturally, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. Somebody who has hurt you so bad that you are a fugitive, you don't have a home, you're hunted like an animal and you have a chance to take revenge. Maybe it was God who led you all the way to his, 
to, to, to the bedside. But David didn't think like that. He did not take matters into his own hand. He recognized the spiritual authority of Saul. He left room for God to judge. And the vengeance was God's, not his. See that, I don't know, that the heart, the, that purity, the man after God's own heart, that gentleness, that kindness in, inside David's heart. Now, let me relate to you a story from the book, The Bait of Satan. It's about John Bevere's own life. And John Bevere was one of the staff. I think he was a youth pastor in in a very large church where there were many full-time staff. And his immediate supervisor, let's call him the deputy senior pastor, okay? It doesn't say quite so in, in the book, but a supervisor of a youth pastor, I thought could be a deputy senior pastor, didn't like him, didn't like John, and was like finding a way to, to sack him. And the deputy senior pastor was constantly bringing up false accusations against John to the senior pastor. And then he turned around and he told uh, John that, hey, the senior pastor is not very happy with you. So it was like a two-headed snake. And, and that he was defending John against the senior pastor. So crafty. And when he wanted to, to scold John for, for something, he would send a memo, maybe like an email to, to all the staff under his charge. And, but it's, it's, it's very obvious that this email was targeted against John. It's just that it was not sent directly one-on-one to John, but sent to all the staff. But everybody who reads it, ah, this is John, being scolded by the deputies in the pastor. And then the rumor started spreading, spreading that John was about to be fired. So John approached the deputy senior pastor one-on-one. He said, why is this happening? And the deputy senior pastor says, I'm just repeating what I know that the senior pastor is thinking about. You get it? I'm repeating what I know that the senior pastor is thinking about. And you can imagine the stress that John and his family were under. His, his, his wife was pregnant at that time. They have just moved in from a different town to work in this church and they had just bought a house. And if you're going to be fired, where are they going to go? And then John finally got some black and white evidence that would expose the senior pastor for all his craftiness. And, and that day he was presenting, uh, preparing to present it to the senior pastor the next morning. The next morning, as he was having his quiet time, he was praying and struggling for 45 minutes. He says, God, this man, this man has been dishonest. He is wicked. He needs to be exposed. He is a destructive force in the ministry. And, and all I'm doing, okay, this is devoid of emotion, okay, God. I'm just presenting the facts to the senior pastor. But he struggled. Didn't get that peace. He struggled. And finally, he says he blurted out these words, God, you don't want me to expose him, do you? The moment he blurted out these words, he says, peace flooded his heart. And then he says, I threw the evidence away. And now, with hindsight, he says, he realized that he wanted to avenge himself. He wanted revenge more than he wanted to protect the ministry. And he realized with hindsight that his motives were not as selfless as as it sounded or as he thought he had. And then, days later, as he was outside the church about to enter to, to work, maybe like just before 9 o'clock in the morning, the supervisor's car passed by, the deputy senior pastor, and he just had this whisper from God, go and humble yourself before the deputy senior pastor. What? No way! No way! Why should I approach? He should be the one coming to me to ask me for my forgiveness. How can I go to him and humble myself and ask for forgiveness? Forgiveness for what? I haven't done anything wrong. But he exercised obedience to that whisper from God. So he went to this deputy senior pastor and he asked for forgiveness. Forgiveness for what? For being critical, for being judgmental of him. And the deputy senior pastor softened a little bit. They talked for an hour, he says, and then the attacks against him stopped. Six months later, while John was out of country, out of America, the, the, the deputy senior pastor was exposed and he got fired. The evidence was much worse than what John thought 
He thought he had some evidence, but later on, six months later, what was found out was even worse than what he thought he had. But for some reason now, John did not feel happy that this guy got sacked. In fact, he felt sadness. And I believe, I, I believe he felt as sad as when God found out that Cain had killed Abel. That kind of sadness, a man after God's own heart. And then one year later, he saw the deputy, the ex-deputy senior pastor at an airport. And he said, I was overwhelmed by God's love and I went over to him and I hugged the man, the man who was once his enemy. And he said that if I had never gone to him a year ago and humbled myself in his office, I would never be able to look him in the eye at the airport a year later. But now I can hug him and all I have is sincere love for him because he was fallen from grace and he has to recover. He has now, after being sacked, to, look up, uh, to provide for his family. What might we have done in a similar situation? I don't know. Taken revenge, I mean, gather the evidence, present to the senior pastor, get him sacked. Finish. Problem over. Might have done that. Or we might have uh, gone into what I call a gossip prayer. Okay, G-O-S-S-I-P-R-A-Y-E. A gossip prayer. That is, you gather your close friends and you say, ah, pray for me. Eh? I'm having this big problem. You know, this deputy senior pastor and not leaving room for the, the guy to, to answer your accusations and, and call it a prayer meeting. Okay, let's pray for him. Of course, pray for me. But pray for him also. And these are all the wrong things that he has done. I'm innocent. A gossip prayer. That's what we might have done. But you know, why is life so difficult as, as a Christian? I mean, if we are all Christians, why can't God just program us after our conversion never to offend anyone and never to be offended by anyone? Why doesn't God just fill us with the Holy Spirit and make us non-offenders and non-offendees forever and ever? Amen. You can see from the anguish of John Bevere, from the anguish of David, that dry, hard ground of disappointment, something that sprouts out, isn't it? You see love coming out. You see joy coming out. You see patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness coming out from the most horrible of circumstances. That's what God wants. That is, I think, one of the, the key training ground for us in the church. That's what I think the church is for. Out of dryness, green leaf. Out of horrible circumstances, joy. You know, God gives us the gifts of the Spirit. For what? To edify the church, to build up the church. God wants us, He doesn't like just give us the fruit of the Spirit. It's got to grow. A fruit grows he wants us to grow the fruit of the Spirit. For what? Also to edify the church, to edify one another. And that by growing the fruit of the church from within this church that is full of sinners saved by grace. And you and I, sinful people, helping one another to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And we see, what do we see? We see love in John Bevere for somebody who has wronged him so much that he could go and hug him and wish him well, uh, that he can provide for uh, his own family and all that. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a natural love. It was totally unnatural. It's divine. It's God's love. And it grew out of disappointment, persecution even, and false accusation. Love those who hate you. It was a divine kind of love. It grew we see joy. We see joy that isn't dependent on circumstances. I mean, joy, John wasn't being promoted from youth pastor to, to whatever, uh, higher and higher up the, the ranking uh, order. The, the circumstances were bad. But there was a, a joy in there. And even while David was running about from cave to cave, there was that sense of joy in that he was able to write psalms of praise to God. He was able to worship God with joy. We see the peace of God. And what is peace of God's characteristics? It transcends all understanding. Uh, Philippians 4. The peace of God which transcends all understanding. You cannot understand 
or most people will not be able to understand unless they do a, a, a big Bible study. How, how David can behave like that, that he had a chance to get rid of a problem, or how John Bevere had a chance to get rid of a problem but did not do it and still have this peace that transcends human understanding. We see patience, love, joy, peace, patience. We see patience of bearing pain while we are under the master potter's hands. David was already anointed king when he was quite young, but he wasn't made king yet. And he had to go through all this. If I had known that I'm already anointed, anointed king, simple, kill Saul, become king, right? I've already been anointed king by a prophet said, but that patience of waiting for God's timing. Patience. We see kindness in both, in both uh, David with Saul and John Bevere with his supervisor. We see the goodness in the heart of this man of God who were humble, who were able to set aside pride and set aside that your deep heart's desire for revenge. We see faithfulness. Faithfulness of, of a man towards imperfect leaders, respecting their spiritual authority and the faithfulness of God in judgment and in righteousness that God will repay. Let God take the revenge. And we see gentleness. Don't you see that gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight? And lastly, we see self-control. That control not to take things into your own bloody hands. You know, I, This is not the way. This is not the way. The biblical way is different. To leave room for God to work. To leave room for God's judgment. So you see the fruit of the Spirit growing out of some terrible circumstances, a lot of it caused by giving and taking offences. I mean, how will you grow if you simply hop from one church to another church every time I or some leader or some cell group leader says or do something stupid and it offended you? So unless I become perfect very soon, I may well have many, many more offences up my sleeve that really is going to offend you in the years to come or the weeks to come? How are you going to grow? And how am I going to grow? If every time I say something stupid or offend you, you're gone to a different church. You see the point? The church. So lastly, I want to talk about, about closure. How do we seek closure? What does the lack of closure lead to? It leads to I don't know if there's such a word, vagabondism, <laughs> some new disease. It leads to rootlessness and restlessness that you're drifting again. So much so that we are unable to grow the fruit of the Spirit. I can think of one um, parallel, and, and that is divorce. Where, where there is only one, I think, uh, situation where there, is, there can be proper closure in, in divorce, and that is if it is because of adultery, as uh, Jesus taught. And even in the case of adultery, you try to reconcile, you try to forgive, uh, but if you're allowed to divorce, you divorce, so there's proper closure. But in most other cases in a divorce, there is no closure. There is no closure because the marriage covenant is broken. Um, and the statistics prove it. Okay, so... In America, first marriage, um, what is the percentage for, for divorce in a first marriage? It's 50%. Okay, it's very sad. One out of two marriages, first marriage, will end up in divorce. Okay, so I got married, didn't work out, I divorced, no real closure. So I think I get smarter. Huh? I get married a second time. I should be smarter now. I know how to behave as a, as a husband. I know how to choose a wife. I should be smarter. So in my second marriage, what are the chances of me getting divorced? Should be lower than 50%, right? No. It's 67%. The higher chance. Okay, 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 okay. Ah, I divorced my second wife, okay? Now I'm even smarter. Third marriage. I should know how to choose a proper wife this time. I should know how to behave as a husband. Should be smarter, right? What's the percentage? 70%. 73%. <laughs> you don't get smarter, you know. I think the reason there is that there is no closure. There is no closure. And it gets worse and worse. 
I wish there were similar statistics for church hopping. <laughs> you know, second church, your third church, your fourth church, and all that, but there, there isn't. But I think that the more you hop, the more you have to hop. Uh, so maybe it's not spiritual vagabond, but it's spiritual bunny. The more you hop, the more you have to hop. How do you get closure? I want to refer to two passages in, in Scripture, and these are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, from verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, or idiot, or you fool, uh, 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 scoundrel, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the religious ruling council. Maybe Ahimelech and his priests, that kind of thing. But anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're offering a gift of worship, a gift of a hymn, a gift of a worship song at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Don't even sing there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and sing, and then come and offer your gift. Straightforward, right? There are no two ways about this thing. And, and here is sort of very generic. I, I tried to check the Greek word and all that, but there isn't. It just says, if your brother has something against you, something against you, it's, it's very generic. It could be a real horrible sin. It could be a small little offense. It could be anything. Something against you. There is no deep Greek word for, for this. It's just something. Something against you. Then don't even worship God, okay? Go and sort it out first. Close that thing and come back and worship. And then you have real worship. Simple. The second passage is in Matthew chapter 18 from verse 15. It says, and these are Jesus' words, right? If your brother sins against you, okay, this time is sin. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. I repeat, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. Okay? I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So, the context huh, is not like where two of you come together and agree that God should give you a BMW, it will be done for you. The context is Dispute resolution, okay? Where two of you come together. Two of you agree to reconcile. Two of you bind an agreement on earth, it will be bound in heaven. Two of you ask to be reconciled, it will be done for you. Just the two of you. I think there is a song that goes something like that, right? Just between the two of you. And I believe there is a very special, I don't know, I think it is a godly, it's a divine kind of dynamic just between the two of you when it comes to, to dispute or, or sin. But that's where our problem is. We can't get past this point. Okay, there can be several sermons here on dispute resolution, bring witnesses together, tell it to the church, and then after that, uh, deal with them as in pagan and tax collector. We're not going to get into that, okay? Because we are stuck. We are stuck in verse 15. Just between the two of you. That's where we are stuck. We can't do that. We'd rather have a prayer meeting of many of us and we gossip and gossip and gossip and pray. You know, um, maybe in this congregation, I say I've eaten a lot of salt more than some of you have eaten rice. Okay, I've seen that we can't get past step one. We can't get past verse 15. So let's not talk about verse 16 and 17 and 18. Verse 15, just between the two of you. In fact, we actively disobey. No way. No way. I am never, never going to approach you between the two of us. I'll talk about it some. I will, I'll bury it. I'll bury it. I'm not going to raise it again. But it'll, 
it will resurface in some ungodly way, sometimes in stomach ulcers or sickness or insomnia. Or it will become that blockage to the joy of worshipping God. I think that's going to be very true, according to Matthew 5. Or you will just leave it and become a spiritual vagabond, drifting, rootless, restless. Or we can be humble like David. Or we can be humble like John Bevere and be obedient. Just the two of you. Go and approach the guy. When you have that kind of closure, you would not have restless, rootlessness, but you will have rested rootedness and you're rooted in the Word of God. Like a flourishing plant. Psalm 92 verse 12. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedar of Lebanon, a strong, healthy tree planted in the house of the Lord, planted within the fellowship of PPH. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. What tends to happen in old age? Bitterness. Ah, so-and-so has has offended me. Something that was buried long ago suddenly resurfaces and gives you stomach ulcers. And you think of this and you think of that and you become a bitter old man. But no, this planted in the house of the Lord, bearing fruit in old age, staying fresh and green. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to like be freed from all these bondages of of uh, unforgiveness and, and offences uh, taken and, and, and all that so that we can flourish. Lastly, I want to tell you the story of uh, John Bevere's son. There's another book written by John Bevere called Enemy Access Denied. And this time he talks about his son. His son is nine years, uh, or was nine years old when he wrote the book. His son is called Edison. One day the son came back crying and said that the teacher picked on him because he was carrying home a note from the teacher to John and the wife, a disciplinary note which will go into his report card and stay there like a criminal record. And the teacher said that Edison was talking in class and creating disorder in class. Edison told the parents, all the kids were doing it. Everybody was noisy, but why did the teacher pick on me? And worse still not, I've got this criminal record. And... John asked the son, so what did you do when you were falsely accused? Edison said, I stood up for my rights. I challenged the teacher. I said he was wrong. And then John said, well, son, you have a choice. You can continue to stand up for yourself and remain under this teacher's judgment, or you can realize that you have not responded to his accusations in a godly manner. You can go to your teacher and apologize for being disrespectful, for resisting his authority. And then Edison, then what do I do? The next time I am blamed for something I didn't do? And John said, has your current approach helped you? By confronting the teacher and standing up and challenging, has it helped you? And the son said, actually it hasn't helped me, it got worse. Then the son finally got wisdom. Okay, I will go. I let God defend me. So, he, next day, he went to the teacher and he apologized. Not for all the facts and the other guy was also wrong and, and I wasn't the only one. Just went to the teacher straight up and said, I apologize for challenging you and challenging your authority. Please forgive me. Weeks later, he became the student of the week. <laughs> you know, it's just that. Um, let me ask the music team to, to come up and, and prepare to, for the closing song. So, I, I want to, ch- I don't like the word challenge, huh? so I want to encourage you, but this is really a challenge. You know? It's really a challenge. I want to challenge you to do something you think is impossible, right? To do that one-on-one thing. And to forget about all the facts. Uh, you know, no need to ask a lawyer to write this letter, or who's right and who's wrong, and the facts of the case are this and this and this, to prove that you're right. Forget about the facts at the moment. I mean, they're still important and all that. But to look at the heart, not the facts of the matter, but the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is a matter of heart, your own heart. So instead of like Edison challenging the teacher that everybody else was 
in the thing together, look at your own heart and seek forgiveness for the attitude that was in your heart. King David could have gone up to Saul and said, you're wrong here, you're wrong there, you're wrong here, you're wrong there. But he says, no, I respect you as my spiritual leader. Why are you doing this to me? I continue to respect you. I did not take matters into my own hand. So do that one-on-one thing, which I think is impossible without God's Spirit's help. Really impossible. It's, our natural bent is not like that. Our natural bent is to take revenge, to prove that we are right. We can go to the ends of the earth, we can dig up all the evidence, we can pay thousands of doy- lo- uh, dollars to lawyers to, to write all the facts down so that we are right. Let's just put that aside first, the heart first, and see if God might resolve the matter for you as He did for David, as He did for John Bevere, and as He did for Edison Bevere. That might happen. Or He might let the matter go a little longer and you'll still be suffering. And the person that you go to for, for forgiveness does not forgive you and makes matters worse for you. What will happen then? Even more room for the fruit of the Spirit to grow. In spite of all these things, the love grows up even more. The joy comes up even more. The peace is even more peaceful. Something like that. So, I challenge you to do something heroic. Okay, If there is someone you need to go to one-on-one, just between the two of you, do it this week. Do it this week. See what happens. I'm just obeying the word, obeying the word of the Lord. I'm coming to you one-on-one. Maybe not all of us need to do that. No need to be so drama. I went to one Bible study and said, wow, this bit of Satan so emo. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was. But it, not emo, it's essential. It really is. Because we need to clear all this ground. We need to soften the ground. We need closure so that we can grow, so that we can blossom. Maybe some of us don't have such an issue. And try as you might, Holy Spirit, you know, shine your searchlight into my life. But don't have leh, don't have. Good. But prepare yourself. Prepare yourself because it is impossible that offences will not come. So it'll come one day. But as we make that preparation, let me know what to do. We've already committed in our hearts that this is what I will do. Keep short accounts. I will do the one-on-one thing. And prepare yourself. Okay, let us uh, just stand up and use this uh, song to to stir our hearts to be emo, okay? <laughs> to let it come deep in our heart and, and offer it as, as a prayer before the Lord.
is open if you cannot find that courage or that ability to what the word of God says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 it's time to ask to ask of God and I want to encourage you to to obey no rationalization, just simple, strict obedience to the godly principle for closure between the two of you. Ask and pray for God to give you the courage, the right time, the right words to approach someone. And have prayer support. We can help one another to pray for that. even if you do not have such a one in your mind that you need to approach, make that preparation. Ask God for strength to, and, and the wisdom and the whisper of God to, to tackle this early before an offence grows into bitterness. That you will flourish like a palm tree, that you will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, that you will be planted in the house of the Lord, you will flourish in the cause of our God. You will bear fruit in old age. You will stay fresh and green. This is our desire. So would you come back? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless, do not curse. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So as obedient children before you, Lord, we want to acknowledge the wisdom, the power of your word and your teaching. We submit ourselves, hard as it may be, to these principles. And I pray, God, that you would give us the strength, the courage, and that 
this week, if it is necessary, that we will take this action just between the two of you. And we will see godly principles worked out, Lord. That some good will come out of it, more than we can ask or imagine. And that our lives will be green and fresh, flourishing. That the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in our lives because we seek to bring closure according to your word, Matthew 5, Matthew 18. So thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.